Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 to 15. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the kind words that you give to your people. We thank you for the promise of Christ and the promise of a better covenant, the promise that, that all these things from the old covenant were pictures that have been revealed to your people in this time. We pray that your word today would be effective not just for outward purification of the flesh, but that you might actually use it to cleanse our consciences through the work of Christ, the true high priest. In his name we pray. Amen. So the writer of Hebrews has been been building up to why Christ was a better high priest than Aaron. How he was greater because he was an everlasting priest. He was greater because, you know, in in Abraham, Levi gave honor to him. But now he's going to talk about the fundamental difference between the priesthood of Aaron and the priesthood of Christ. Aaron's son and Aaron's, Aaron and his sons, their ministry was in the flesh. All they did was cleanse the flesh. They didn't cleanse the spirit. It, had, it was all these pictures that in the end, all they could make them right with was the people who were identified as the people of God. It didn't make them actually right with God. It was not a spiritual service. It was a physical service that the sons of Aaron did. As opposed to Christ, his and his sons, their ministry is spiritual. It's not just physical. It's not just about saying, oh, we're going to, to be identified as the people of God the work of the Melchizedekian priesthood is to be the people of God. And to be the people of God, you must be holy. To be the people of God, you must have spiritual life. You can't just be in the flesh. You can't just be carnal. You must be spiritual. So all those things that the sons of Aaron were given to do, all the killing of the animals, all the de- they all dealt with dealing with physical uncleanness, physical separation, physical being outside the camp. And Christ comes and deals not with the physical, not just with the physical, with the spiritual. And actually says not just that we can physically be in the camp around God, where God's presence is, but we can actually spiritually be in the presence of God. We can spiritually be in the presence of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. All the things that the sons of Adam to do, all those killing of animals, they didn't have a spiritual effect. They only had a physical effect. They couldn't fix the problem with the soul. 
they couldn't make one's actual guilt before God forgiven. Because that's not why he gave them those things. He didn't give them the ceremonial law so that the conscience would be cleaned. He gave the ceremonial law so that there would be means to restore relationship with one another in physical relationship with one another in the people of God, in in national Israel. It was not given to make a spiritual nation. It was given to make a physically distinct nation that could be identified, could be seen. That continues today, right? I mean, you go to the grocery store, and in the grocery store, they have, they have kosher foods. They have foods that are marked kosher because God is still causing a physical people to be seen that are separate, which is Israel. And none of them know anything about God. If they knew things about who God truly was, they would leave. They would, if they had spiritual life, they wouldn't identify as a Jew. They would identify as a Christian. And so you see how efficacious it was, all the things that they put in place to create a physical separation. It was perfect for what it was given to do. And we see it today. But what it wasn't given to do was to restore people to God. What it wasn't to do was to undo what happened in Adam with the fall. It was to create a physically distinct people because it was about cleansing in the flesh Something had to be that was greater to undo what happened with Adam. Where we all spiritually died in Adam. Something greater was needed than the ceremonial law. Something greater was needed than the pouring out of the blood of bulls and goats. About the sprinkling with water from the ashes that were mixed in with, with poured water. That you'd be sprinkled with and you would be cleansed. That, that obviously couldn't actually fix the problem that happened when Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All those things were, were far too insufficient to be able to deal with that sin. And so God established all those ceremonial laws like we talked about last week to create a physical parable, something that could be seen, that was acted out so that we could understand spiritual realities. And so in Christ, it's no longer merely physical. The true church still can be seen physically. There are still spiritual behaviors that create real physical manifestations that really separate a people from the world around them, that really cause their behavior to be different. But it's greater than the physical separation because there's people just like the Pharisees that could put on the physical separation, but they weren't spiritually reconciled to God. In Christ, there's a spiritual reconciliation. There's a spiritual cleansing that takes place that never took place. It was never intended to take place in the Old Testament, in the covenants that that was entered into by Moses for the people of Israel. So in Christ, it's no longer merely outward. There's many churches, and I would argue that, that most places that identify themselves as churches are no different They're no different at all than the physical parable in the Old Testament. You come to church, and that means that you're the people of God. You you take the what they call communion. You take this, and this somehow makes you physically separated. It it makes you distinct, but it has no spiritual meaning. 
This is what most churches look like. They're just recreating in a different sense the same tabernacle, the same physical picture of being separated from the world. You're baptized so that you're brought into the church. All these physical things that didn't work in the old covenant, they don't work since Christ established the new covenant. It has to be spiritual. It cannot just be physical. Most churches in the world, they think dead works can still cleanse you and make you acceptable to God. It's important to recognize that. That's what most churches believe. Most places that call themselves churches, I should say. And and God is writing in Hebrews going, it didn't work for them. It didn't work in the old covenant. Why do you think it would work in the new covenant? Dead works cannot save. You can do all the things that you can make you think you feel good. You can go to church. You can go to prayer. You can do a Bible reading twice a day. You can do all these things. And they do nothing unless you've been made spiritually alive through the blood of Christ. In the New Covenant, as last week's passage said, all those offerings in the Old Testament, all those pictures of the bread, all the pictures of the light, they were just parables until the time of Reformation. They were just there for information. They were given so that we could understand spiritual truths. They themselves didn't have any power except to create a distinct physical people. They had no power to create a people that were reconciled to the living God. Under the new covenant, the offerings are no longer just physical. Now they're spiritual. So the new covenant is a much better and a much more powerful covenant associated with a much more significant tabernacle. Not one raised by the the strength of men. Not one, one raised out of the wealth of a nation. Not all these panels of gold and silver and all this, these jewels, these expensive jewels, nothing so cheap, nothing so meaningless. The tabernacle that Christ established was the one that's made without hands, that's far more significant because it can actually, to enter into that tabernacle, you actually have to have your conscience purged of dead works. You actually have to say, I can't do anything to reconcile myself to God. It has to be the work of God. The new covenant is much better, a much more powerful covenant because with it you can enter in to the presence of God where you will see his light forevermore because you've been transformed. You're no longer just carnal. You're no longer just physical. You become a spiritual being. And Christ is spirit. God is spirit. Excuse me. The Father is spirit. So that through the covenant that Christ established, by the shedding of His blood, you can become spiritual so that you can see the Father. You can go into the presence of the Father. And so since it's a better tabernacle, since it's a spiritual tabernacle, it required a better sacrifice to enter into it. Not like what was acceptable, go into the tabernacle made by flesh. Not the tabernacle that was all this gold and all these other things. To enter into the tabernacle that was made with flesh, unblemished flesh of an animal was required. To go into the spiritual tabernacle, one made without hands, an unblemished spirit was required. Which was only fulfilled by Christ. 
but to follow Christ in. For Christ to be your way to the Father, you must not just be cleansed on the outside. That's what the Old Testament law did. That's what the Old Testament ceremonial law did, is it cleansed people on the outside so that they could go into the, to the physical presence of God, to enter into the spiritual presence of God. We need to be cleansed on the inside and not just the outside. We need to be cleansed from dead works. We need to be cleansed from the idea that there's any physical work that can make you spiritually alive. That spiritual life only comes from the sacrifice of Christ. So Christ established a better covenant that the spiritual truths that were pointed to by all those Old Testament practices, they're now made real through the sealing of the covenant with the blood of Jesus Christ who entered into the better tabernacle. When he entered, ascended up into heaven, he entered into the true holy places, the spiritual holy places, rather than just the physical, which is all that the priests on the order of Aaron could ever do. So with that, let's go to the first verses. Verses 11 through 12. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And so it starts with but. It's drawing a contrast with what immediately came before it. What immediately came before it, verses 9 and 10, where it was symbolic for the present time to which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with food and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances, imposed until the time of Reformation. He's saying that's what all those Old Testament things were doing. That's when Moses establishes, through the commandments of God, the Levitical priesthood. All it was is just to be these pictures that were there until until the time of Reformation. But, But it changed. With Christ, it all changes. All those services, all those offerings, they couldn't do anything to cleanse the conscience. They couldn't do anything to assuage the guilt within. Christ came very differently. He came as high priest. He took on flesh. He dwelt among us. He he. He became like us so that we could become like Him. He became physical so that we could become spiritual. The writer of Hebrews has been making the point multiple times, starting in chapter 1, that Christ came so that He could be high priest. Chapter 1 and chapter 5 of Hebrews, it quotes Psalm 2, 7 and 8. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. He was always eternally son. How was he begotten? He was begotten at a specific point in time. He became the high priest. He became appointed high priest of the order of Melchizedek. He became the royal priest, the king of Salem. So Christ had to become the royal priest. That's the only way that we could be separated from all those, the blood of bulls and calves that could not bring anybody into the presence of God the Father, except in a physical sense, not not actually have communion with Him. So He was the high priest of the good things. 
It's important to recognize that. God sent Christ not to be a high priest that, was, that abused his people. Think of the sons of Eli. Think of the sons of Samuel. All these things, all these offerings, they all felt like a burden. Christ came as high priest to be a high priest of good things, of good promises, of good ways, of good... Because it's not just this physical picture that in the end you walk away from. You're a leper and you're cleansed and you go and you make your sacrifices. And at the end of that you walk away and you still stand guilty before God. And you still recognize the guilt. Christ came to do much more than that. Christ came to have a much greater impact than that. He came to do good things. They just made you reconciled to the nation of Israel. God made it so that you were reconciled through the blood of Christ to himself. It's on a different order. He didn't come and he didn't appoint a high priest. All the high priests in the end, they abused people. Maybe not all of them, but many of them. Annas, Caiaphas, the sons of Eli who would have been appointed high priests, the sons of Samuel, they were abusive. They took the physical situation and used it for physical prosperity, just like so many pastors do today. But Christ came to establish a better priesthood, one that wasn't about wealth, one that was about being actually having your conscience cleansed, having it purged of the guilt that none of the Old Testament things could do. So he sent Christ because of all the sacrifices in the Old Testament were not a picture of God's hatred towards Israel. They were for his people. They were for their good so that they could be a separate people. And so how much more does he assign these sacrifices? Those Old Testament things had become unbearable because they had no power to do anything except outward cleansing. But they're not unbearable what Christ does. Because after the Reformation, after he comes and takes those physical things and, and makes them spiritual work, all of a sudden they become good things. They don't become unbearable. They become a yoke that's easy to bear. They're good things. They're blessings. He is a high priest of good things. Good things to come. When he came... We have to recognize the real spiritual, real effects of salvation before that. David could look in the face of Moses and he could rejoice in the law of God. He could say and cry out and praise of God how it was his meditation night and day. And then he could turn around and commit adultery and murder. Even a man after God's own heart in the old covenant had real spiritual limitations. And in the new covenant and the promise of the things to come and what Christ did is he did far greater than even the Old Testament saints received. Limitations that were, there was constraint when you believed in God in the old covenant, but you still see them sin in heinous ways that, that Paul writes and says, nobody could be saved that, that behaves that. None could be in the kingdom of God that behaves that way. Because Christ came to be the high priest of good things to come, of greater things than what the, the Aaron's priesthood ever did. The promises that no murderer, no adulterer, no covetous, no reviler, no liar, no coward. And I could go on that, that God would spiritually cleanse all those who are a believer in the new covenant. He came to do good things. More was needed. What, what Aaron did 
was insufficient to actually reconcile anybody to God. So he, Christ, is the high priest for good things to come. His priesthood is not this picture of being able to go into the presence of God on earth. His priesthood is about him ascending into heaven so that we can go into the presence of God in heaven. It's not being about brought into an earthly tabernacle, a tabernacle that was made with hands. It's being brought into the heavenly tabernacle. The promise of eternal life. And so because he was a greater high priest, because he had a greater sacrifice, because he had greater promises, he must be serving in a greater temple. The other temple was a parable. It was a picture of spiritual realities. The tabernacle that Christ is the high priest of is not just the place where his Shekinah glory is. It's the place where God actually dwells. It's the true throne room of God, not just a picture of it. The earthly tabernacle was a shadow of the heavenly realities. Christ went into the heavenly realities and not just the shadow like the Aaronic high priest went in once a year. So he serves a greater tabernacle, a more perfect one. When we think of perfect, how can something be more perfect? If it's perfect, it's perfect. And that's not exactly what the language says, but I do think that is the idea. It's not that the Old Testament tabernacle was imperfect, that there was some flaws in it. There were no flaws in the Old Testament tabernacle. It just wasn't given to be anything other than a physical picture. It was perfect in the physical picture that it was given to be. But that's all it was. It was just a picture of how the people of God were were established, how the people of God were made one, how people were reconciled to the people of God. It was all these pictures, and it was perfect in its picture. It was perfect in being a parable. But that's far from being reality. Christ came to establish the reality and not just the perfect or not just the, the, the physical. And so in doing that, he made a more perfect tabernacle, a more complete tabernacle. The other one lacked in its ability to cleanse the conscience. All it could deal with was physical things. All it could make atonement for was physical things. The tabernacle that Christ serves in is one that actually reconciles actually causes people to be reconciled, to be brought into the presence of God. So it's just like if you saw a physical picture and you said, oh, that, that's, that just really captured him. That just looks exactly like him. Yeah, it could be a perfect picture, but it's still just a picture. The person is still more than that. That's the, the difference between the Old Testament tabernacle. It's like taking a picture of somebody. The difference between the Old Testament tabernacle and the true tabernacle is like the difference between a picture and the actual person. That picture could be a perfect representation, but it's also just two-dimensional. That's the picture of the tabernacle. It's a perfect representation. It was perfect. But then there's the reality, which is far greater, far more perfect. It's a tabernacle. He uses the word tabernacle here. And obviously he's been tying it to the Levitical law and the establishment of the Levitical law by Moses. But since he's talking about spiritual realities, it's also worth considering he could have said temple. But he doesn't. He says tabernacle. The, the idea of the tabernacle, it was, it was transitory. In the Old Covenant, it was only there, although... 
they did not treat it like they were supposed to and did not do the service like they were supposed to. But it was only there until the son of David came and then it became the temple. And the writer of Hebrews goes back to the tabernacle rather than talking about the service of the temple, which is what was actually happening right then as they were making the daily sacrifices at the temple, no longer the tabernacle. And so why go back to tabernacle? Tabernacle is really just the word for tent. And it's separated by the translators both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That at times they'll translate the same word tent, sometimes tabernacle, but it's really just the picture of a tent. So he's a minister of a greater tabernacle. Because there's still promises to come. There's still other things to be fulfilled. He is the minister now of the tabernacle. There will be a point where heaven will come down to earth, where the new Jerusalem will descend, and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth, and that's the picture of the temple. So right now he's serving in the tabernacle, but he will be the priest of the temple too. He will be in the new heavens and the new earth. He will be the light of that. So he will be the high priest of the greater temple, but right now, right now it's the picture of the tabernacle. The Holy of Holies is not here, but the Holy of Holies will move to be here. Christ has ascended to heaven. When he returns, he will bring with him the new Jerusalem. And remember that new Jerusalem, it's a cube, Revelation 21, 16. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with a reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. It's this picture of the, the Holy of Holies descending the new Jerusalem. Because the Holy of Holies, whether it was in the tabernacle or whether it was in the temple, it was always a cube. The height and the breadth and the width were always the same. And so that hasn't been established, but it has been established, that promise of the internal inheritance, that promise of eternal life, as Christ now serves in the spiritual tabernacle. One not made with hands. It's not a physical tabernacle. Since we are saved, we're now in the spiritual equivalent of, of the holy place. We have the bread of life. We have the word of God that we are to consume. We have the lampstand. We are the light of the world. The Holy Spirit, the, the oil of the lampstand. These are things that are, that are present now. But there's still a separation from the Father. But Christ is on the mercy seat now. And the cherubim are surrounding him like it says in Isaiah 6. They're crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's happening now. So Christ came. He came to establish a better tabernacle, a a spiritual tabernacle. He came not like Moses did through the work of his hands and the hands of all the people and he created a physical tabernacle. Christ sent his spirit who made a spiritual tabernacle. As his spirit goes through the whole world and makes it a spiritual holy place. As all his enemies are defeated and not a physical one. It says in John 4, 22 through 24, you worship what you do not know. We worship, we know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Christ came to establish a better tabernacle. A tabernacle where people would worship Him in spirit and in truth. And He established it not by the work of hands. He established it by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. By the giving of the Holy Spirit to to all His sons and daughters. So Christ established without man's hands. Man is inherently carnal. So he can't be the one that establishes carnal. You know, it says that, that carnal man cannot understand spiritual things. And so it can't be made with the hands of man. It has to be made through the Spirit of God, through the power of God. Otherwise, it's just merely a physical tabernacle. Then it says that is, which means he's going to make the same point using different language. The same as making it without hands. He's saying it's not of this creation. That word translated creation is translated building in the the King James. And it really comes from the idea of being formed. And so it's something that man can't form. It's not of this formation. It's not of the physical things that we can touch. It's not of the things that are on this world that we can handle. That we can rebuild. We can take the dirt that God made and make it into a building. But this is something that man can't form because it's nothing that can be formed of this creation. Daniel 2, where the Bible speaks of the kingdom of God being the stone that's cut from the mountains without hands, it's that same idea, the kingdom of God, the tabernacle of God. These have to be made by the Spirit of God. They can't be made by the strength of man. They can't be made through the use of man's hands because man can't make spiritual things. We're not able to form the kingdom of God any more than we're able to save somebody. We just have the responsibility to do the things that were commanded by God, but we need to recognize it's the Holy Spirit that actually creates the kingdom of God. It's the Holy Spirit that actually saves people, that actually makes the tabernacle of God. It's not us that does it. We have responsibilities that we've been assigned as servants of the Most High God, servants of the living God. But it's God who has to save people. It's God who builds his kingdom. So not with the blood of bulls, of goats and calves. Because it's not of this formation, the created things that God made, that God gave Aaron and his sons to work with, none of them could cause access to this tabernacle. There's nothing that we have that can grant, grant us access to this tabernacle. It's a spiritual tabernacle. We've been given dominion over physical things, not over spiritual things. And having dominion over physical things, all we can do is deal with physical things. God is the one that needs to deal with spiritual things. The blood of goats and calves, the requirement for blood to be shed, was all just a physical picture so that we could understand a spiritual reality. The blood of goats and calves could bring people into the physical tabernacle but they were always insufficient to bring one into the spiritual tabernacle. They were always insufficient to cleanse the conscience. They were always insufficient to constrain sin in a way that made you acceptable to God. So it's not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. Christ had to shed his own blood to have access to the spiritual holy of holies. Blood had to be shed, and not just physical blood, or it could have been of this creation. It required the God, it required the Son of God to take on flesh so that His blood could be shed, 
So he could be the more perfect sacrifice. He could be a spiritual sacrifice and not just a physical sacrifice. So then he entered the most holy place. So because he was righteous, because he was holy, because he was without blemish, because he was God, he could ascend to heaven. He could ascend into the most holy place. He could ascend into the throne room of God. He could go where God the Father was and he could sit at his right hand. On the 40th day after his resurrection, he ascended through the clouds into heaven. He went into the spiritual holy of holies. That physical tabernacle, the physical temple, they were always just pictures of the spiritual reality that God is in heaven and he is separated from us. And the ones that could, the one who could make a way from earth to heaven was Christ. And then through Christ, heaven and earth will become one. That's what it says in Ephesians 1. And that when heaven and earth become one through Christ, there, then God will be in the t- temple that will never be moved. He will be in the permanent structure, not the tabernacle. And heaven and earth will become one. It will be the new heaven and the new earth. So think about how significant this would have been a concept for the Jews. They looked to the temple and they went, this is the holy place. This is where, you know, this is the place that proved that they were the children of God. Because God's presence was in their midst. And the writer of Hebrews is saying none of that mattered. It was all just a physical picture. It had no spiritual consequences. It was just a parable of a spiritual truth. It was just... You know, as it says, I think it's Romans 3. What what advantage then does the Jew have? To him was given the oracles of God. To him was given the parables. He was given this picture of the physical need of a temple, of a physical need, a, a physical picture of how to enter into the presence of God. But Christ came to be the spiritual means to enter into the presence of the Most High God. And so that writer of Hebrews is saying the temple didn't really matter. It was the high priest going in once a year. It was a picture of Christ's ascension, a picture of how Christ would go into the true holy of holies, the most holy place. He would go to the Father like it talks about in Daniel 7. He would go to the Ancient of Days. That's, that's what all the Day of Atonement was about before. Because he would enter into the most holy place once for all. The physical high priest had to sacrifice the bull. He had to sacrifice the goats. He had to send out the the scapegoat year by year. He had to blow in a cloud of incense. He had to leave as soon as he could because he couldn't stay there. He, He couldn't go in once for all. He could only go in there and then he had to flee lest he die. But Christ could go in. He could ascend into the true Holy of Holies, the spiritual Holy of Holies, where he could remain and he will remain until the temple gets rebuilt. Excuse me, the tabernacle gets rebuilt as the temple in the new heavens and the new earth. He goes into the most holy place and he can stay there and can continue to intercede. It's not that like the Aaron where he would take in the children of Israel on his shoulders and he would bear them on his breastplate and he would go into the holy of holies and bring them before God, but then he had to flee. Christ goes and he bears his people into the holy place, to the most holy place. And he remains there. He continues to bear his people into the most holy place. So his was once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 
their priesthood, if they had faithfully kept it, was just to prevent God's wrath from being upon the people of Israel. It wasn't about anything eternal. It had to be done year by year. It wasn't, it wasn't a permanent thing. It was always temporal. It was always just, we'll give you a, a year where we don't destroy you till the next day of atonement. So it had to be pointing to something greater because there was no end to the sacrificing of bulls and goats. There could never be an end of that. But Christ goes in once for all because there is an end. Because that all that sacrifice, all that blood, all the scapegoat, all these things, they're just pointing to the fact that Christ, Christ had to go into the Holy of Holies, the spiritual Holy of Holies. Because he could attain for, he could do an atonement. They did an atonement for a year to set aside God's wrath for a year. Christ comes in to set aside the wrath of the true children of Israel, the spiritual children of Israel, so that their wrath would be set aside for eternity. It was an eternal redemption, an eternal, pit, an eternal purchase. The purchase that, that Aaron did was good for a year. The purchase that Christ did was for eternity. Verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So he goes, for if. He's going to make an argument. And so he's stating his premise. If the sacrificial system had actually done something, and it did do something, it turned aside the wrath of Israel, or the wrath of God on Israel. It caused people to be reconciled to Israel. It caused a physical reconciliation, a physical atonement. If all those sacrifices could do something, how much more should we have an expectation that the sacrifice of Christ will do? For if the blood of bulls, notice he flipped the order from before. Before it was goats and bulls, or goats and calves. And that was specifically talking about referencing the idea of being brought into the the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. That was about goats and calves. Now he switches it, and he talks about bulls, and he talks about goats, and he talks about the sprinkling of the water of purification. So before he was talking specifically about what the Day of Atonement is, and now he's broadening, and he's saying, what was the effect of the burnt offerings? What was the effect of the sin offerings, the peace offerings? What was the effect of all these offerings? The trespass offering. If there were effects of those, and there were effects of those, how much more should we expect the, the how much more should we expect that the blood of Christ will have? If if these if these practices could maintain them as a people for fourteen hundred years, how much more should we expect from the blood of Jesus Christ than the blood of the bulls and calves and goats, which which kept them as a people? It worked. How much more should we expect the blood of Christ to have an effect? So I think it's talking about all the sacrifices here. In Leviticus, it talks about atonement. Like in Leviticus 1.4 about the burnt offering, then he, being the priest, shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. That's just about physical atonement. That's not about spiritual atonement. 
that person now can be reconciled back to the nation, the physical nation of Israel. But Christ came that he could do a greater atonement. He had a greater sacrifice. His, his blood had a greater effect than the blood of a bull. If the blood of a bull could cause people to be physically reconciled, how much more should we expect from the blood of Christ? In the blood of goats, the blood of goats could also make atonement. That word's used in relationship to the sin offering. That word atonement as well as the burn offering in Leviticus 4.35, he shall remove all its fat. As the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering, then the priest shall burn it on the altar according to the offerings made by fire to the Lord. So the priest shall make atonement for his sin that he has committed, and it shall be forgiven him. So it's not just the atonement was made with the bull. The atonement was also made with, with lambs, that you would be reconciled to God. You would atonement, but it wasn't, it wasn't a spiritual reconciliation. It was always just a physical res- reconciliation. It was always just so that you weren't cut off from Israel, the nation, the physical nation. So the sin offering is a picture of your sins being cleansed, a picture of justification, a picture of being saved. But it was just a physical one for them. It was just a physical restoration to the people of Israel. It was about a sacrifice of this creation, of this formation. So it couldn't have any power beyond that. But how much more power should we expect from Christ, who is not of this creation? In the ashes of a heifer, this is a reference to Numbers 19 that Noel read. How red heifer that had never had a yoke put on him, right? That's a picture that no one forced Christ to do work for them. Starting with the temptation of Satan in the wilderness, no one ever put a yoke on Christ. Then Eliezer, the high priest, did it the first time, but then it was done again later. He would oversee it being taken outside the camp and killed before him is obviously a picture of Christ being taken outside the camp and killed before Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest at the time, because he's the red heifer, sprinkling the blood directly before the tabernacle of meeting. It's the picture of the blood of Christ. not only gives us access to the Holy of Holies, but it also gives us access to the holy place. Because of the blood of Christ being sprinkled, that the Holy Spirit can be poured out. And then it's burned and turned to ash, the picture of Christ being buried, because throughout it talks about ash to ashes to ashes and dust to dust. It's that picture of being turned into ash. And then a clean person would gather the ash and they would use it to make water of purification, which then would be sprinkled with hyssop on people who touch dead bodies. And they would have to do it on the third day and the seventh day. Right? The third day is the picture of of it well. Touching a dead body is a picture of recognizing you're dead in your sins and trespasses. And being sprinkled the third day is that picture of spiritual resurrection. It's that picture of becoming alive in the spirit and then being sprinkled on the seventh day through the, these ashes of this heifer, which is a picture of the, being the living water that comes from Christ. But that seventh day is the picture of the physical resurrection where, where your soul and your body will be rejoined. That whole process of sprinkling the calves, it was all, it was about reconciling people, people who touched the dead. It was reconciling that, them back to physical Israel because they touched the physical dead. 
but that whole process couldn't actually cleanse anybody. It couldn't cleanse anybody's conscience. It couldn't cleanse their guilt. Uh, it was all about sprinkling the unclean with that picture of water and ashes. But it wouldn't solve the problem. It wouldn't make them alive. They'd still be, yes, they touched physical death, and it would cleanse them from physical death. But it wouldn't cleanse them from the spiritual death that they needed to be cleansed from. It wasn't supposed to do that. So it didn't actually solve anybody's problem. But it's sanctified. We need to make sure that we understand that these processes, they still sanctified. They still made a people that were distinct from the people around them. They still constrained sin in real ways in Israel. It's just like the reading of the scriptures has a sanctifying effect. But that sanctification is not unto life unless, I mean, it's, it physically constrains you, but it doesn't give spiritual life. That's the, work, that's the work of God, God reforming you. So it's sanctified for the purifying of the flesh. It made the people, the person acceptable to come back into the society of Israel, back into the society of the Jews. It made it so that touching them would not make other people unclean anymore. But it did nothing for their soul. Because God didn't give it for that. He gave it just so they could see the picture. Because it needed a greater sacrifice. It needed a greater blood to be spilled. We created a greater tabernacle. It was given to just be a physical parable of a greater spiritual reality. So if that worked, if the blood of bulls, if the blood of goats, if the blood of... of of the, or excuse me, the, the sprinkling of the ashes mixed with water, if that actually had a sanctifying effect, how much more should we have, expect the blood of Jesus Christ to have a sanctifying effect? If that worked in a physical sense, shouldn't we expect a lot more in a spiritual sense when somebody has been truly sprinkled, when Christ's blood was shed by the, for them, when the ashes, the living water is poured upon them? How much more should we expect How much more shall the blood of Christ have an effect? If the blood of bulls and goats had an effect, if the blood of of the, the water of purification had an effect, then think of what we should expect through the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, through the work of the spirit of God, so this isn't just the son of God, this is also the third person of the Trinity, the spirit of God. If this is what a physical thing of this creation, if that's the effect it had, how much more should we expect when it was the son of God and when it was the Holy Spirit of God doing it, how much more effect should we expect that to have? When he offered himself. It's important to recognize what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. He offered himself. He was not only the sacrifice. He was also the one who made the sacrifice. This is incredibly significant that he was the one who offered himself. Because otherwise he wasn't the high priest. If they took his life from him. If when, when Herod said, excuse me, when Pilate says, you know, crucify him. If it was Pilate's power that it was done under, then Pilate was the priest. It wasn't. Christ laid down his life. He offered himself. That's how he could be high priest. If anybody had the power over him to take his life, then they're the priest. But they didn't. 
Christ offered himself, he became the sacrifice. He laid down his life. And by laying down his life, by offering himself, by being able to call down a legion of angels, which could have easily destroyed the legion of men. One angel killed, what, 130,000 in one night or something. And he could call down a thousand of them. The legion of men that were arresting him, it had nothing to do with those men. It was Christ laying down his life. He was the one who offered himself. Because Christ was his own priest who sacrificed himself. And he was without spot. He was without sin. He didn't have any spiritual blemishes. When the high priest, to be high priest, you had to have no physical blemishes. Caiaphas had lots of spiritual blemishes. Aaron had lots of spiritual blemishes. But they were completely qualified to be high priests because they didn't have physical blemishes. For Christ to be high priest of a greater tabernacle, it required greater than just physical, not having blemishes, not having, being deformed. He didn't have any spiritual blemishes. And recognize still, people want to make it things physical. That's why they want pictures of Christ. They want to make him as the physical perfect man that looks so handsome because they're going, we want physical cleansing. If you want spiritual cleansing, why would you ever make a picture of Christ? It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. If you recognize what Christ's sacrifice was to do, making a physical picture of Christ is idiotic. It's to make him less. It's to make him nothing. It's to make him just like a bull or a calf. But if you recognize what Christ did, that he's spiritual, then then you can't draw a picture of that. If you want spiritual cleansing, you don't look towards a physical picture of Christ. But he did not come just in the physical realm. He did not come as just a sacrifice to like a bull and a goat. He came as a sacrifice that was perfect, that was pleasing to God. Not just to cleanse physically, but to cleanse spiritually, to cleanse your conscience. Christ came to do more than just establish a physically distinct people, separated from the world. He came to make a spiritual people, a people that were separated to God. The word translated cleanse, if it was transliterated instead of translated, it would be carthesis. Catharsis. It's not just like you were washed. It was like transformative. It's like you were here and it was a big shift. It's not just that you were washed. You know, the King James translates it purged. And, you know, I think either word's fine. It is used, it's used a number of times in the New Testament and just briefly looking through it, most of them are related to lepers. It's the picture of a leper having his leprosy removed. That's what God does to our conscience. We're the leper. We're the one who, who can't see sin, can't feel sin, can't feel the effects of the physical world. We can't see what's happening to us. And all of a sudden, God takes us and cleanses us. He purges our conscience, and now we can see sin. That's the picture. It's about renewing how you think, about your mind being changed. It's not just about how you think about physical things, 
But now all of a sudden you can actually understand spiritual things. The old covenant sacrificial system never did that. It never, it never did anything beyond the physical. So it couldn't cleanse your conscience from dead works. This is a constant theme of Hebrews. Is that everyone thinks they can be made satisfactory to God by their works. If I just pray this way, if I just go to church, if I just do this, if I just do that. When you're spiritually dead, you think that somehow, you know, from the last rites to all these other things that these false religions make up, they're all about physical reconciliation because they don't understand spiritual things. But Christ came so that those dead works would be seen just as what they are. They're dead works. They do nothing. There's no physical works that, God, that anyone can do that will appease a spiritual God. For God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. After Adam, and after we all died in Adam, when he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, with his sin we all died spiritually, and so there's nothing we can do except dead works. But Christ's sacrifice was to make the spiritually dead rise to life. Christ's sacrifice was to undo the work of the first Adam. He was to become the second Adam. The first Adam brought death. He brings life. And so cleanse your conscience from dead works. It makes you recognize that there's no work that you can do that makes you right with God. It has to be the work of God. And then we're cleansed from dead works to serve the living God. It's important to recognize he doesn't just save us so that we don't get the punishment of hell. He saves us to serve. He saves us to become a a slave of God. It's the picture of, of redeeming somebody, buying them out of slavery so that you become their slave. That's what Christ did. He bought us so that we could be servants. He bought us so that we could serve righteousness instead of serving sin. As a servant of God, we have a duty to serve. As a slave of God, since he purchased us, we now have a responsibility and our life becomes about serving the living God. He didn't just save us from dead works and give us a living spirit. He saved us from dead works to serve the living God. The whole Jewish sacrificial system was about serving the flesh. Which is why Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, that your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. If your righteousness is like the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, all it means is you're still in your dead works because that's where all their righteousness was. And it did nothing. Christ came as a greater sacrifice so we can serve in a greater tabernacle. A tabernacle that's a spiritual tabernacle and not a physical tabernacle. Not just a physical tabernacle. And so that we can serve the living God, a spiritual being. Verse 15. And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. That those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So then it says, and for this reason. It's really important to connect these two. The writer of Hebrews is not saying he's a mediator for our sake. He's a mediator so that we can serve the living God, is what the Bible says. He's a mediator so he can cleanse our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God. 
And so when he says, for this reason, we need to connect where it says he is the mediator. We want to go, oh, he's the mediator. Isn't that great for us? Instead of, wait a second, he's the mediator so that he can cleanse our conscience so that we can serve God. That's what he was the mediator for. He mediates with the Father for our sakes, but the reason he became the mediator is so that we can serve the living God. Mediator literally means the one in the middle. Christ came to be the one in the middle. He came to be that flesh, right? It says the veil is the flesh of God. He, became, he came to be that mediator, the one that is separating us so that not to block us off from access to God. Because before they were separated, there was a huge abyss. There was no way that anybody could approach God. But Christ, being the mediator, being the veil, being the way, all of a sudden it is possible to go into the Holy of Holies, where before it was not possible. It is by the the flesh of Christ that all of a sudden there is a veil that can be gone through, that we can go through that veil in our death and be into the presence. Or when Christ returns, we can go in that veil. We can see, we can be in the presence of God. In Adam, we were all cut off and there was no veil. There was no tabernacle. There was no holy place. There was no most holy place. And then Moses comes and he builds a physical tabernacle so people can understand a spiritual reality. But then Christ comes and makes a better tabernacle. A tabernacle where all of a sudden there is access to the Father. There is a place that you can go through. There is something, there is a way to the Father instead of there just being a gulf that can never be crossed. We can enter into the Holy of Holies. It's not cut off for eternity. Because he's the mediator of the new covenant. The writer of Hebrews has been asserting that a new covenant was needed. That because of the inadequacies of the old, a new covenant was promised and it would be established. And that would cause the old one to pass away. And so he's the mediator of the new covenant by means of his death. So just like the old covenant in Exodus 24, where Moses had to sacrifice animals to seal the old covenant, to establish the new covenant, blood still needed to be shed. Blood needed to be shed for the redemption in order for people to be redeemed, in order for people to be freed from bondage, in order for people to be freed from their transgressions. Through Adam, they were all sold under sin. All the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament could not actually cleanse the transgressions. It says the transgressions of the first covenant... The law was there before the first covenant. But the writer of Hebrews, he's talking to Hebrews and he's pointing out that the first covenant, which really goes back to Adam because it was a covenant of works. Exodus 24, the covenant was, we will obey all things that you have commanded us. It was a covenant of works. And Christ is going, or the writer of Hebrews is going, any time that you transgress anything that God would want you to do, that means you are guilty and that you are worthy of damnation. But those transgressions that are under that covenant of work that was made more explicit by the law, like it talks about in 2 Corinthians 3, that they looked in the face of Moses and all they saw was death. All they saw was their, their condemnation. That those transgressions that you see, that death that you see because of the dead works that you participate in, 
all of a sudden you can now be made right with God. Under the first covenant, all you were told about is your transgressions. Under the new covenant, you're given life. That those who are called, those who God calls, and the form of the Greek is, is past perfect, which means that you're called with an ongoing effect. So it's like you're called and you're being called. God calls us, which cleanses our conscience, but then it, we're being called, which he keeps our conscience cleansed. He continues to wash it. He continues to cleanse it. He continues to purge it. The effect of the calling continues. It's not temporary. It continues to have an ongoing effect. So that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Those who God calls, they receive Those who God calls, he saves. Those who God calls, because it is a spiritual work, it is not of this formation, it is not of this creation. God calls them, he speaks to them, and they will receive an eternal inheritance. The promise of the eternal inheritance, the promise of the blood of bulls and goats, is that it would cleanse them until next year when they'd have to sacrifice them again. It would cleanse them until they realize another sin that they did, that they had to kill another sin offering. It would cleanse them until they trespassed and they saw a sin that they did, that they'd have to go kill another animal. It was all transitory. It was all impermanent. It wasn't about anything eternal. It was all about temporal. But Christ, he cleanses your conscience. He's more effective. He's not just physically cleansing you. He's not just making you from being physically clean to physically, excuse me, physically unclean to physically clean. He's taking and actually making you spiritually unclean to spiritually clean. That's the promise of the eternal inheritance. Because no one can go into the Holy of Holies unless they are holy. No one can go into the presence of God unless they are righteous. That's the promise of the eternal inheritance, to be in the presence of God for eternity. That requires your conscience to be cleansed now. So let me give you some applications. Don't let your religion regress to just rituals. This is actually easy to do. Humans like rituals. They make them feel like their, their problems have actually been handled. They've actually been dealt with. They would go and they would do these sacrifices and then they'd walk away and they'd go, we're right with God, when they weren't right with God at all. And God keeps saying, do I really want the blood of bulls? Do I really want the blood of of calves? Do I want the blood of lambs? Is that what I want? He says, no, I want a humble and contrite spirit. But the ritual made them feel like they were righteous. All the rituals that were assigned by God for Israel to do None of them made them righteous. None of them cleansed their conscience. They all still left them guilty, and they still knew it, so they would still go back. They would pretend otherwise, but then they would come back, and they would make another sacrifice. But make sure you understand we can do the same thing. Instead of worshiping God at church, we can just come to church. We can say, I was at church. I'm fine. I was with the people of God. I'm fine instead of actually worshiping God while you're at church. Instead of singing praises to God, we can just enjoy singing praises without any thoughts of God. And we've taken what God gave us to do to give us spiritual cleansing, to give us the service that we've been assigned to do instead of dead works, 
and we can turn it right back into dead works. Instead of communing with Christ and his body at the Lord's Supper, we can just eat a piece of bread and drink a sip of wine. Don't let your religion digress to just be a religion of the Old Covenant where it's just an outward practice and that it's not about your conscience being cleansed. You can do the Lord's Supper and never think about, do I need to repent of sin? Am I actually reconciled with God? We can just leave it with the ritual and the rituals don't save. Going to church doesn't save. Praying to God doesn't save. Singing hymns doesn't save. Preaching a message doesn't save. Listening to a sermon doesn't save. Taking the Lord's Supper doesn't save. They're all dead works unless they're made alive through the Spirit of God. But on the other hand, just like the Old Testament rituals purified the flesh, don't deceive yourself. The rituals do purify the flesh. They don't have any salvific effect because they're only physical just like the Old Testament ones. But some of those things, like look at the Old Testament and the power of it, that, that the food laws in particular, after their temple was destroyed, they preserved the Jews for 2,000 years. They have real effects, real effects of changing of people, real physical effects. And so rituals do purify the flesh, but none of it saves. The same thing happens in the church. The practice of the church, the preaching of the word, prayer, breaking bread together, these really purify the flesh. But without the Spirit of God, they're doing nothing to purify the Spirit. But it's really easy to be confused about the sanctification that happens in the flesh by the rituals of the church to think that you're saved. Actual salvation is a work of God. There's plenty of people and there's a lot of young people in this room that can sit and think that they're holy and that they've been made right with God and they're spiritually alive because of the things that they do. They go to prayer. They go to Sunday morning. They do all these patterns. And it can feel because there is real sanctification. They can look at the people around them and they can go, I am not like the people around me. I'm not like most of the people. I'm not embracing transgender stuff. I'm not like 25% of the people in New York who say that they're of a different gender than they were born with. They can look and they can say, I have been sanctified. And that can be a completely true statement and have nothing to do with where they stand with God. You need to make your calling and election sure. Don't trust the rituals. Make sure that you're spiritual. Because the physical rituals, they actually cleanse. They actually have an effect. We shouldn't deny the power of, the, of God. Luther said he thought everybody should be forced to go to church. Not because he thought everybody was saved. But because he recognized that it actually sanctifies people. And it's good for society if everybody goes to church. The problem is it's better for society for people who are saved to know they're saved. And so that's not what God says to do. But it's important for us to recognize the sanctifying effect of the church. And it's important for you not to confuse your sins being constrained because of those who are around you, because of the things that you do to think that you actually have a heart of flesh. Next application, the church, the tabernacle of God, 
is not formed by the work of man's hands. Yet we are to do work. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But we need to make sure we don't deceive ourselves and think we're the ones that formed the church. That we're the one who formed new believers. We have the responsibility to make the general call. We have the responsibility to preach the gospel to those who we come in contact with. We have the responsibility to make sure that everybody understands that that they stand condemned if they haven't put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But we don't have the ability to make what's called the effectual calling, the calling that actually saves. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. We do the general call. God does the effectual call. God can do the effectual call without the general call. But we have a duty to make the general call, to preach the word of God, to declare what's required for someone to be saved. But let's make sure that we recognize that it is not formed by hands. The kingdom of God, the church of God is not formed by hands. It's formed by God. So we're to be faithful to do what we've been given to do, but let's never confuse our work for the work that God does. Another application, it's always been through the work of God that people were saved. It's always about access to spiritual things, and things of this creation can never provide that access. It always required the work of God to make people spiritual beings rather than carnal, to be able to access the spiritual tabernacle which God erected in the fullness of time. This is what's always been required. And it, the Old Testament saints, they were, always, they, were, they were saved because of the spiritual work of Christ, not by the work of man. Another application, remember that God set all those ceremonial laws in place in the Old Testament so that we can understand spiritual realities today. Even as we talked about the Day of Atonement, we see from this, these few verses on the Day of Atonement how much, how much the writer of Hebrews goes, don't you see, you're supposed to be able to understand all this stuff from the Day of Atonement. The writer of Hebrews didn't go through all the other laws. But from all the other laws, we're supposed to understand all these other things that that are supposed to fill out our understanding of how we're supposed to serve the living God. Because he gave those laws to them for us so that we could understand what we're supposed to be doing. So as we look at what the writer of Hebrews did in this passage, we should recognize this is what we're supposed to do with all the ceremonial laws. God didn't rewrite them. Instead, he gave us a spirit, a spirit of wisdom, a spirit of understanding. So we can go back and we can read those things and say, this is what it's pointing to. He takes this idea of him going in once a year, and from that he gets eternal salvation. From that he gets the cleansing of the conscience. We're supposed to understand a lot more than we do from the the ceremonial law. Another application, if the sacrifices of a bull can make one physically clean, physically separated, physically holy, so that people could see and understand, so that the people around them could look and say, Israel is different. If that's what that sacrificial system could do, how much more should the blood of Christ make it visible that we are a separate and distinct people, that we are a holy people, that we are distinct from the world around us, if the blood of bulls and goats could maintain a, a group of people for over a thousand years, 
if the food laws can make them holy for, for 2,000 years after that, how can we not think that the blood of Jesus Christ will make a distinct people that the world can see? We should have a greater expectation of the efficacy of the sacrifice of Christ. The idea that Christ could die and leave us exactly the same when a bull dying didn't do that. How much more should we expect Christ dying to change us if a bull dying could change the people of Israel? The idea that Christ could die and leave us the same without a changed conscience is to make his sacrifice less of a sacrifice than the sacrifices of bulls and goats and sheep and birds. Christ's sacrifice was not less than that. And if those sacrifices could have that effect to make us separate and distinct, a holy people, how much more should we expect the blood of the perfect Lamb of God to make a separate people, a distinct people? Another application, pictures of Christ are intended to reduce Christ so that his sacrifice was not spiritual, it was physical. Make it just like all the sacrifices that cleanse the flesh that did nothing for the conscience. That's the same thing that's going on when people want a picture of Christ. They're minimizing the sacrifice. They're minimizing what Christ did, what he died for, what the effect of his death was. They're making something that purges the conscience of man, but does it? Excuse me, does does not purge the conscience of man, just just, um, mollifies it, just makes it so you feel better. You bow down before a picture of Christ and you feel better, but it doesn't do anything to purge the conscience because you've just made it about physical sanctification and Christ came so that we would be spiritually sanctified. It is so easy to make things that God said should be spiritual, that that's what Christ came to do. It is so easy to turn them back into physical, turn them back into the system that worked for thousands of years. Let's make sure we don't do that. <coughs> In the last application, God saved us to serve. God made us priests of the order of Melchizedek, not just so that we could say, oh, I'm right with God, but so that we could serve. Priests were about the work that they had been given to do. That's the Old Testament picture. And so Christ saves us. He makes us priests. He makes us a royal priesthood so that we can serve the living God. The physical priesthood had physical work to do and the spiritual priesthood has spiritual work to do. Ephesians 2.10 For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For this reason, he established the new covenant. For this reason, he became the mediator so that we can serve the living God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we do thank you for this passage. We thank you for the things that you teach us and instruct us from it. Lord, let us have ears to hear. Let us have a desire to obey. Let us not just hear these things and walk away and not be doers of them. For you came so that we would be doers. You came so that we would be changed. You came so that our conscience would be cleansed. So we would no longer be slaves of sin, but that we could serve you as slaves of righteousness. 
Lord, we thank you as we consider what the high priest did and how much greater a high priest you are, how much greater a high priest Christ is because of a better sacrifice, because of a better tabernacle, because of better promises. Lord, let us, let us act like priests in that tabernacle. We ask this in your name. Amen.